This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with public defender Mano Raju. We're talking about his relationship with the late Jeff Adachi, the city's decision to conserve more mentally ill people, and how he wants to change jury duty. Mano Raju, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wondered if you could just give listeners maybe a two-minute biography, where you're from, where you went to school, how long you've been in the public defender's office. Sure. Um, well, I think my biography really has to start with my parents who came uh, from a small village in South India, immigrated to the United States. And I grew up on the East Coast, uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, Boston. I went to school at Columbia University for undergraduate and then made my, my way out to California to do a master's and then went to law school here and initially started in the Contra Costa Public Defender's Office, but I've been in the San Francisco Public Defender's Office for 12 years now. Wow. How long were you in Contra Costa? I was there for six years. Okay. I understand you're the co-founder of Public Defenders for Racial Justice. Can you tell me about that group and how you had the idea to start it? Yes. So it was also, it wasn't um, solely my idea. It was Jeff Adachi's idea. Oh. And, uh, but I was one of the first people who was heavily involved in that and one of the founding members and one of the leaders in the training Division of Public Defenders for Racial Justice. After the Michael Brown shooting and a lot of those shootings that were you know, on video and increasing awareness of some of the things happening in the criminal justice system and also you know, with the, with the uh, sales or the, the wave of the Black Lives Matter movement, it seemed like it was time for us to be more race conscious in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been a lot of work on implicit bias and there's efforts to sort of um, not you know, tr try to treat everyone individually and not look at race in the past. But I think with that, with, with those events and more awareness of things uh, as they were playing out in the street, we thought it was an appropriate time to try to have strategic methods in courtroom for having jurors just have a more honest look at dynamics that happen in the system. So, for example, how do we get more diverse juries? How do we bring in community experts into the courtroom to try to explain dynamics that don't happen? Because there was an almost an assumption that if there's uh, an act that people feel is racist that happens on the street, we just need to go into the courtroom. But the reality is those biases, you know, are part and parcel of what happens in courtrooms mm -hmm. also, and we have to try to weed those out. Mm -hmm. And understand that you want to look at uh, making juries more diverse um, by expanding the pool of people who tend to um, be on juries, and part of that would be paying them more. Yes, right? yes, yeah. and part of it is also education. It's really mm -hmm. important. I think a lot of people feel that either they don't have the time or they feel they have some issues with the system so they don't just want to come. But mm -hmm. for the person sitting next to you, it's really important that we as, have as many open-minded and fair people in the jury room as possible. And in a city with the wealth that San Francisco has, it's really a shame and it should be avoidable to have jurors who say, I don't have the financial means to be on a jury. So we're looking into methods where we can try to pay them to, to make sure that they're not prohibited from being on the jury 
solely because of their economic situation. And I think that will also hopefully lead to more racial diversity mm -hmm. on juries. How much are they paid now? It's $15 a day. It's, mm -hmm. it's yeah. Negligible. Negligible. What would you like to see? I'm not sure what the exact amount would be, but I've talked to uh, union folks who said, listen, if you paid our people a minimum wage and give them a lunch break, they'd be there all day, but they can't afford to be there. So, I mean, that would have to be a further conversation mm -hmm. as far as what the... But treat it like an actual job. Yeah, treat it like an actual job. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, what was your relationship like with the late Jeff Adachi? He died almost a year ago. Um, he must have hired you into the office in the first place. He did hire uh -huh. me into the office. Jeff was a real uh, mentor to me and a uh, true civil rights hero that influenced uh, so many of us. Uh, shortly after coming to the office, he recruited me to the office from Contra Costa County. And after being here for three to four years, he asked me to be the training director of the office. And I took that very seriously. And in many ways, I, view, I viewed my role as the training director in the office to help shape the culture of the office. And then later he promoted me to be the felony manager. So I was really worked very closely with Jeff and have a lot of respect for uh, how far he's moved uh, the bar for what appropriate criminal defense and vigorous criminal defense should really be, mm -hmm. public defense. Mm -hmm. What what was it like for you when you learned that he had died so young? It was um, it was just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, when I got the phone call from a colleague and friend, I was completely stunned. And um, it, it really took me and so many in my office, so many of us were just completely shocked by that. Um, and a lot of what I'm doing right now, I, I sort of – I hear him in the background mm -hmm. and I really think about what would Jeff think about this. And I know I sat right next to him at our last manager's mm -hmm. meeting. And one thing he said is, how are we going to take our office to the next level? And that's something I'm really trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. He had such a big reputation, a big personality. What is it like to try to fill his shoes? I don't know you very well, but you don't seem quite as <laughs> like, you know, out there. And, you know, right. as he has yeah, gone. it's, it's, you know, it, it, those are certainly big shoes to fill. And I'm mm -hmm. not trying to fill those shoes. I'm trying to sort of chart my own path, mm -hmm. uh, along with the staff in my office and the collective, all the wonderful leaders that we have in my office. But having worked with him in the past, it's when I go to conferences, uh, public defender conferences, both nationally, and in California, everyone knows him and, and wants to know where we're going mm -hmm. uh, with with our ideas. But like I said before, because I was part of the leadership office before, I feel like, you know, a lot of what Jeff was doing, we were really supporting mm -hmm. him to do those things. So mm -hmm. it's really trying to extend and expand what was already, what Jeff was already doing in the field. Mm -hmm. And when and how did you learn that Mayor Breed wanted you to take his place? It, it wasn't long before the actual announcement. It was less than a week before I re, uh, received a call from her chief of staff saying that she wanted to meet with me. I went in on a Wednesday. The interview went uh, apparently more than twice as long as she had allotted for it. Mm. And a few days later, I got a call from the chief of staff saying, you know, we're really close to this happening. And then I got a call Sunday morning at my son's soccer game mm. from the mayor saying, press conference tomorrow morning, uh, we're going to do this. Wow. And, so, and we, you were 100% on board right away? Or did you have any reservations? You know, uh, you know, initially, we were all just so stunned. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, both in and outside the office, came up to me and asked me if I, you know, if it's something I was interested in pursuing. A lot of people wanted me to take up this leadership position. And what I told people is, like, I love doing what I'm doing. I love being a felony manager in the office. I love representing clients. But if people like the way that I represent clients and like the way that I manage and I'm the natural leader for the office, then I'm going to jump in with both feet. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. And how would you say you're running things differently or similarly than he did? I would say I'm, you know, informed but not bound by Jeff's mm -hmm. vision. And I'm constantly evaluating what it is we are going to 
adopt, what it is we're going to adapt, and what it is we're going to abandon. But the core of, you know, if I had to say the core of what it means to be a public defender in San Francisco is to think about if you had a loved one who, for some reason, was incarcerated or charged with a crime, what kind of representation would you want for them? And if you're not providing that level of representation, then you need to raise the level of representation. Mm -hmm. So I think we try to do that as much as possible. And then we also try to also keep people out of the system to begin with yeah. and ensure reentry opportunities and just expand to really provide wraparound services mm -hmm. for our clients. And how long have you known Chase Bodine and what was your relationship like with him? I've known Chase Bodine for several years. He's been in our office, a very fine attorney and uh, a visionary. And uh, we had a very good relationship and uh, I think he's, you know, uh, we, we have a good relationship and I think he's going to be a very fine DA. Mm -hmm. What did you think of his surprising win? He wasn't really expected to even, he admitted at his inauguration that it was, he was surprised that right. he was on that stage. Yeah, I, he, uh, I think initially as he go, got momentum, it looked more and more possible and as he spread the message of what he wanted to accomplish. But I think throughout the city, people really realized or they're tired of the same sort of revolving door and they were looking for more substantive um, answers to what needs to be done in our criminal legal system. And you even hear the Democratic candidates running for president. It used to be the, the mantra was tougher and tougher on crime, but now it seems like they were all sort of tripping over each other to see who had a more prog progressive vision of what true criminal justice reform looked like. So I'm proud that the voters of San Francisco realized that someone the person who needs to lead the district attorney's office is someone who was raised in the culture of the San Francisco public defender's office. Mm -hmm. And I think it says a lot about the type of office that we have. Mm -hmm. What do you think it'll be like to have two public defenders running the criminal justice system? Well, I think for us, it, you know, I, I expect some reform from reforms from Chase Boudin, certainly. But the reality is it doesn't change what we have to do. Whatever the, uh, prosecutor chooses to prosecute is based on a very limited uh, scope, which is the police report. Mm -hmm. That's all the information that they have. And the police only arrive after something happened. So what happened before, uh, what people's mindsets were, certainly what our client is thinking is not something that the prosecutor has a window to. It's mm -hmm. not their fault. They just don't have that window. However, we have that window because we have the access to our clients, of course, and the access to their families. So um, we're hopeful that there will be less uh, what is referred to as overcharging or enhancements. But just because there's less, there maybe we're hopeful there will be less overcharging of their side of the event does not mean that they know our side of the event. And that's right. And that's something that we elicit through cross-examination, through witnesses. And that's something that, that won't change. So it doesn't really change our, our mission. And Chase understands that it's really important that we fight for our clients. Mm -hmm. And within days of taking office, um, he fired some prosecutors and plucked some replacements from your office. So were you mad about that? Because <laughs> that gives you more work to replace them. It, it does just give us more work. I, I was expecting that. Uh, the reality is there's a lot of public defenders who share values with Chase Boudin, who actually campaigned for him. Having said that, and I didn't expect that Chase is going to be able to implement changes without bringing some people who are more similarly minded to him. And that's what he's done. Uh, so we'll certainly miss uh, those attorneys in our office. Uh, but having said that, there we have just dozens and dozens of resumes of people who really want to be in our office. Mm -hmm. I was talking to someone yesterday and I asked her, why do you want to be in the San Francisco Public Defender's office? And she was like, well, this, that's the mecca. Of course, mm -hmm. we all want to be in that office. Yeah. So um, we're hopeful to fill those holes with some dynamic 
new new hires. Right. And you use the word uh, revolving door, which I think a lot of San Franciscans feel like is the current status quo in San Francisco's criminal justice system right now um, with police making arrests. And pretty soon the alleged criminals are back on the street doing what they were doing you know, hours before. So how do we stop that? Well, I think one thing that's really important that we do is we have to um, stop looking at 850 Bryant or the criminal courthouse as the beginning of the end of what the solution is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's really important that we get to root causes. You know, we have to look at inequities in education. We should be looking at inequities in housing. We should be looking at um, uh, mental health issues. Uh, there's a whole range of things that lead to oftentimes someone being in the system. If we address those root causes we're, and and even on the back end, try to find treatment if someone does happen to be charged for a crime, real treatment, real um, job creation, uh, real empower, empowering ways, educational opportunities, we're much likely to see uh, that revolving door. And I think our offices are particularly well suited to generate that because the reality is once someone's charged and once they come into custody, we're meeting them at the beginning and we're already fighting to get the best result in their case mm-hmm. through litigation strategies, social workers, investigators, paralegals. So it's only natural for us already fighting for that client to want to see that person succeed after our representation ends, whatever the result was, whether it was a plea or a trial or, or a dismissal or some diversionary process. So we're you know, we, we, I've used some salary savings to, to hire a couple part-time social workers, but mm. we want to expand that area because we really do want to meet people uh, if they happen to be incarcerated for when we represent them and see them better off at the end, whether that's mission hiring hall, a tech internship, um, city college courses, or rehabilitative services, mm-hmm. if necessary. Mm-hmm. I'm Heather Knight, and I'll be right back with Mano Raju. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'm back with public defender Mano Raju. A lot of the crime that's occurring in San Francisco seems to be linked to people's drug addictions or mental health crises. And there's been some famous cases in the headlines in recent months with that. Um, where do you think the city is going wrong in terms of um, getting help for those people and actually resolving the issue? Well, I think it's it's just it's also, I think it's an issue of addressing the issue as soon as we know that it's there, and also being aware of harm reduction. Like we shouldn't be kicking people out of programs if we find that there is a violation and putting them back in jail because that really doesn't solve anything. It doesn't get uh, people the help they they need. We're more aware of harm reduction methods, um, but I think it's also important that we want to focus on the problem of uh, addictions in certain cases, but we also want to empower people to seek more. I mean, I was just uh, over at the United Players Center a few minutes ago, and there's a lot of people who struggle with addiction who've done a lot of time, but, you know, they really like working with youth or they really like coaching sports or they really like, you know, some other, and they're making, these are people who've done, you know, 20, 30 years in in prison and are now out making really valuable contributions Mm -hmm. to society. So I like to really look at people's uh, full potential and have higher goals for people than just staying out of trouble. Mm-hmm. 
Now, the city is expanding its program to conserve mentally ill people, meaning they'll um, be compelled to accept treatment even if they say they don't want it, and um, your office will represent those patients, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think of the program expansion, and how will you handle the increased caseload? Well, I think the, you know, we have a very, we have a big office. We do immigration work. We do uh, represent people on misdemeanor cases, felony cases, and also in the mental health realm. And I've actually done some of that work in, in Contra Costa County representing people. If there end up being more people who are conserved, we're of course going to uh, represent them. We may have to expand more resources in that area, have more attorneys there. Uh, because while we understand sometimes if someone is a danger to themselves or others, or if they can't provide for their own food, clothing, or shelter, there is a right to conserve them. But we have to make sure we protect those rights to make sure they actually need that. Or uh, if there's an ability to get them out of that, realm, we'll represent them to perhaps find another placement that's not a conservatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, after Jeff Adachi's death, there were leaked police reports about the circumstances behind it, and police raided a journalist's home trying to find out who leaked the information. You issued a statement seeming to support the raid at the time, saying, I am pleased that um, Chief Scott and others are keeping their word and working to get to the bottom of it. Do you regret that statement, and do you still think the raid was an appropriate action? Yeah. Well, I try not to have uh, uh, regrets, per se, but I, I, I regret not making a more full statement at the mm-hmm. time, because sometimes, and this was you know, shortly, it was at a different time and I'm more getting used to more media coverage. Uh, <laughs> and I think what was important for me to identify was I was pleased that they had identified who was the person that it was leaked to because it seemed like a step in the right direction. At the time, I wasn't even aware at the ra- of the raid when the statement eventually, it eventually got to someone and it was put in an article about the raid. But yes, of course, we fight to preserve the Fourth Amendment and all, uh, all for all San Franciscans mm-hmm. and all people. And, you know, I filed uh, hundreds of uh, motions to suppress and, and motions because of violations of the Fourth Amendment, whether it's Mr. Komodi or anyone else. We, um, you know, we obviously support, the, you know, his, his, the sanctity of his home, and there should be no uh, violation of that. Having said that, um, what does remain unknown is who in the police department leaked it out. And Mm -hmm. it seemed like that was a step in the direction to finding out who that was. And I think that's what uh, Chief Scott was was looking for. Oftentimes what happens is that we, um, when there is a police investigation, we find out that it just, it's just a black hole and nothing happens and you don't hear anything about it. So I was just commenting on, she seemed to make, be making some movement to finding out who in his department had leaked the information. It seems like the raid, because it was so clumsy, actually stopped the rest of the investigation. We never really heard anything more about it. It seems so. like it has, and we're yeah. still waiting for answers on to the, what the rest of the investigation uncovered. Yeah. Uh, former District Attorney George Gascon said that the San Francisco Public Defender's Office takes so many misdemeanor cases to trial to clog the courts and get better outcomes in felony cases um, with the thinking that if you take up everybody's time with misdemeanor cases, witnesses may die or their memories fade and it becomes um, harder to prosecute felonies. Uh, is that a concerted strategy? And um, what do you? how do you respond to that? Uh, that's not a concerted strategy. <laughs> I myself hand, have handled both a misdemeanor and a felony caseload in multiple counties. And um, as both a felony attorney and as the felony manager, I was always interested in the felony cases moving quicker because the reality is you have a finite amount of resources. And if someone is delaying on a particular felony case, you're going to get another felony case on top of it and they will have less time. So we actually push and we keep track of how long 
the felony cases were lasting because we wanted people to move the cases quicker because we find that to be better for our clients, actually. <laughs> and as far as being a misdemeanor attorney, we don't want our misdemeanor attorneys focusing on anything else but the clients that they have and what is their way to best represent that individual client. It used to be the case, and it was the case in my previous county, and used to be the case in San Francisco, that there were dedicated courtrooms for misdemeanor cases. And those there would be three or four four different courtrooms, and there would be arraignments in different courtrooms, and they would be able to handle the cases. They've changed that so they have arraignments in one courtroom, and then they're consolidated courtrooms, and they're sending misdemeanors and felonies everywhere. Whereas before, if they had dedicated courtrooms for misdemeanors, then there would be no possibility of that. And for, uh, I'm not sure what their logic was behind it, and then there may be some good logic to it, but there was a decision to change that. However, if they split the courtrooms up, that wouldn't be an issue, but certainly we want everyone focusing on the cases in front of them and the clients in front of them. Um, yeah. Okay. Gascon also accused the public defender's office of not always conveying settlement offers from the district attorney's office to clients. And how do you respond to that? Yeah. Every attorney in my office knows that they have an obligation to convey every settlement offer whenever, whenever that offer is made. Having said that, the reality is that Oftentimes, you don't know if an offer is good or not unless you're prepared, doing everything in your power to prepare the case for trial. Mm -hmm. Because if you're only looking at the police report and just pleading the client out, that's one way. But that's not that's not ethical, and it's not uh, the kind of uh, service or representation that any client would want. What we should be doing is preparing to try the case, doing it, leaving no stone unturned, filing every motion we can. Um, you know, spending a lot of time with the client and their family, preparing yourself to see what would happen in trial. And that's how you know if a particular offer is a good offer or not. So in many ways, preparing for trial or going to trial and resolving a case for a plea, they're, they're part and parcel of the same mm -hmm. approach. And But you believe every attorney in your office is conveying every absolutely. offer to yeah. clients. Yes. And you're running for the local Democratic County Central Committee, or DCCC for short. Mm -hmm. um, you already have a big job. Why do you want this one, too? I do have a big job, and uh, I've been asked that by – you're not the first person to have <laughs> asked me that question. And the reason I'm running for it is that so many of the issues that wind up in a criminal courthouse start with an environmental justice issue, with a housing issue, with an um, education issue, with a youth empowerment issue. Um, any any number of issues that that actually do not fall within the criminal justice realm, and as a public defender, as the public defender of San Francisco, you know there's over twenty thousand people that come through our doors every year. So it, it only makes sense that the public defender have a voice in the room, so we can get at root causes and have a voice um, that could prevent people from coming through our doors to begin with. And the you know the mayor's office and the city is very focused on equity issues is very focused on housing issues and on the back end to the extent we can facilitate uh, spaces for our clients to go that is actually a healthy space that both empowers them and their families. That's another place that is sort of outside of our the direct work that we do, but no doubt impacts our clients. So I think I can have a lot of impact for our client base within the um, DCCC. And I think it's important that that public defender voice be in those conversations. Mm -hmm. Some people who aren't as well known as you who are running as well say that they think that the elected officials are running just so that they can pick the chairperson and then you're all going to quit. <laughs> There's a rumor out there. Is that the case? That's not my, that's not my plan. <laughs> you're going to serve out the whole I'm going to serve out. Okay. Um, great. Well, I think you've survived all of my serious questions. And now it's time for the lightning round. Sure. 
Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? I'd say it's a tie between uh, Farolito and the Outer Mission and uh, Corneta in, in Glen Park. Oh, that's my favorite too. Okay. What is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? Favorite movie would be, I'm going to go with uh, Pursuit of Happiness. Oh, yeah. Uh, both because of uh, the home where that was filmed is actually very close to a, a street that I lived on. And it has the connection to Glide. And it's a beautiful father-son relationship. And I'll also throw in a vote for La Mission. Okay. Where is your favorite place to get a stiff drink? Uh, the recovery room. <laughs> you need it after. A <laughs> right. Day yeah. What was your first concert? First concerts, I, I have a vague memory of this. I think it was only three or four, but my mother tells me I went to hear Zakir Hussein, who's this amazing tabla player mm. when I was in Pittsburgh. And she, apparently I was literally dancing in the aisle <laughs> for 90 minutes wow. and not aware that that was happening. And uh, and everyone was sort of watching me. That's so, very cute. Yeah. What was the last book you read? It's um, by Yah Gassi. I forgot the title of it, but it's a beautiful. Homegoing? Yes. Yes. yes that's it. That's yeah, awesome. My yeah, favorite. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite depiction of a lawyer in a book, TV show, or movie? Eugene in the practice. Why? Because Eugene was, he came into a courtroom knowing what he wanted to accomplish, and he was very uh, determined and was able to communicate powerfully in a short amount of time. What is something pop culture gets wrong about lawyers? Uh, what pop culture gets wrong about public defenders <laughs> is uh, how many of us are totally dedicated to the craft, how much we really care about our clients, how much, particularly public defenders in the San Francisco Public Defender's mm -hmm. Office and, and some of the better ones, and how much we really want to get the best results for our client and how much we really are about public safety at the end of the day because we want to see our clients in a better place than they were before so they're really thriving and doing more than um, supposedly staying out of trouble. Mm -hmm. How often is it that you represent someone who you're sure is guilty, and how do you deal with trying to get them off? Sure. Thank you for that question. <laughs> uh, I'll start with there's a shockingly high percentage of the time where someone is mischarged, overcharged, or completely charged wrongly. Having said that, you know, it's obviously not our job to determine and to pass judgment on someone uh, for being, quote, unquote, guilty or not. I would love to see a, a determined study of the impact of having someone really fight for you in court and the empowering impact that has. Because you have to keep in mind, a lot of our clients are presumed guilty. They mm -hmm. often walk into a courtroom. Oftentimes, the judges think they're guilty. The prosecutor thinks they're guilty. The police think they're guilty. And perhaps the jurors think they're guilty. And often, a lot of our clients have felt unseen and unheard. And I've seen countless times where someone feels like the mere fact of someone fighting for them you know, giving a powerful opening statement, cross-examining effectively, putting on witnesses and really fighting for someone, even if they're found guilty versus pleading guilty to begin with, that mere fact of someone seeing someone fighting for them has a more positive impact on that person's life mm -hmm. going forward. So mm -hmm. I think it's vitally important, even if you know that someone is, uh, quote unquote, guilty, to continue to fight for that person to get the best result because that mere fighting for them and seeing the full picture of that person can have a hugely positive impact mm -hmm. on his or her life or their life. But to play devil's advocate to get the best result for society, maybe that person did something violent and you know he did it, and yet your job is to try to get him out. 
So how do you? <laughs> well, when, you, when we say did something something violent, I mean, so many times. I mean, I had a case. And I'll give you a, a particular story where I had a client accused of uh, stabbing an undercover officer, and it turned out that the jury found we ended up the charge was case was initially charged as attempted murder. He was looking at a life sentence. It eventually got reduced through motion work to something which was an eight year sentence. This client had no record. It was actually a road rage incident where the officer was the really angry one and, and the jury found it w- was the was the aggressor in the case. And did he do something violent? Yes, but what he did was in self-defense. And what was important for me to do was to draw out the full implications, really find the witnesses, put that in front of the jury for the jury to decide. Mm-hmm. And what the jury ultimately determined is, even though it looked like on his face that he was guilty, he wasn't guilty. And this client has been out, he's doing wonderfully well. Um, he's... Um, you know, not been involved in the system mm-hmm. at all. And I think society's better off than he had. He, had he pled guilty, gone for six years, been in custody or eight years or um, been in custody and come out having spent this time incarcerated, I think society would be less safe at this point. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Lastly, what is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? I try to squeeze in uh, making breakfast for my family and particularly uh, chai, uh, which my chai is pretty good uh, in the morning time. I try to squeeze in uh, some quality time with my son and something, whether we're reading together or hanging out. Uh, he plays a vicious game of ninja, which I can explain. <laughs> I can only explain. You can only. I can only explain it with my hands. Uh, and then also some uh, a little bit of breathing meditation uh-huh. and stretching. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming today. It was fun to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you you to Mano Raju for joining me today, to Erica Carlos for producing this episode, and to you for listening. San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.